Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Angelica Ng. Angelica is a reporter in Taipei, Taiwan. She covers energy and tech for the Taipei Times. She's a self-described optimist who who is unabashedly pro-technology, pro-environment, and pro-Taiwan. Angelica, welcome to Decouple. I'm so glad to be here, Chris. I'm a huge fan. (laughs) Well, I certainly appreciated, uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago, you did an awesome uh, Twitter summary of our episode on SMR economics. Uh, But you'd come across uh, my feed before with uh, some of your um, very entertaining Twitter content. So I had to have you on. Um, I've been pretty interested uh, in the region and in uh, getting a sense of the conditions of nuclear around the world, but um, you also write broadly about energy and a number of other topics. So um, I think you're a pretty fascinating character. I want to take more than the usual 30 seconds to get to know you a little bit. So um, yeah, introduce yourself and uh, maybe trace us along the path of how you came to be an energy reporter in Taiwan. Well, this time... Last, oh, I can't say this time last year, but Valentine's Day, uh, 2020, I was still the pastry chef at Michelin rated Hinoki and the Bird in LA. I was, uh, working my way up, clawing my way up the food ladder. Um, okay. and, uh, I had my own five year plan going when COVID struck. And now, f- five year th- plan doesn't sound very <laughs> neoliberal. You describe yourself as a neoliberal shill, but I do, I do. All that, um, <laughs> all that came a little bit later. But, okay, uh, sorry I was, to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I did. I never thought I was going to. When I left journalism, I swore I would never go back again. But uh, never say never in life. Um, I came back to Taiwan because of COVID, and I decided to stay um, because I started working again as a reporter and um, found that the environment has completely changed. Taiwan is such a more interesting, vibrant place than it used to be. There's a ton of news to be covered. And um, I really became very, very attracted to reporting on energy use, which is going to become a huge, huge issue for the island. So a couple of questions for you there. Um, you said Taiwan's uh, changed and become much more interesting, I guess, since COVID hit. Is that, I mean, I did an interview maybe this time last year on um, on the COVID response in Taiwan, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, I th- it seems like there are these, you know, no pun intended, islands of uh, kind of functionality where the COVID response um, has led to the economy not being entirely crippled or the society completely shut down. I know I know things may be changing now. I've, I've seen some uh, uh, some suggestions that uh, the the amazing efforts that Taiwan made initially maybe maybe um, falling back. But is that part of why going back was attractive, that it just wasn't a dysfunctional failed state? When it came to COVID response? Let me tell you, when I saw that my friends in LA were not wearing masks, I knew it was time to GTFO. Because uh, I'm Taiwanese, and as soon as I heard about COVID, I knew what it was. This is like SARS to the return of the son of SARS, right? And if you're not wearing yes. masks, um, I knew we were going to have a huge problem in LA. Uh, I flew back to Taiwan. And um, I would say that your characterization of the Taiwanese response is not quite fair. I don't think our response um, really uh, changed much, but the enemy has gotten stronger with the variants. And um, 
in May, uh, Taiwan had a pretty gnarly bout of the alpha variant. And that's just about under control. And now we're all kind of, uh, you know, trying to cross all our fingers and toes that the Delta variant doesn't come out because life has just about returned to normal now. And this is um, like Taiwan's essentially been a what we call like a COVID zero country, um, successful with very Mm -hmm. early um, and stringent measures um, back in the the beginning of the pandemic to control flights in from China, for instance, and then uh, really strong public health measures. I think you guys had an app that came out very early um, that was um, well regarded around the world, but essentially has life up until the, the alpha breakthrough and maybe what's happening now, has life been fairly normal on the island? Um, 2020 was completely normal. It was a complete parallel world. I would go on Facebook and see all my friends and be like, what's going on? Uh, <laughs> we're, we're just, we, we live apart from not being able to leave the country. We had a completely normal 2020. But I want to say, I just want to say that that's not, exactly the reason why um, I decided to stay in Taiwan. Um, actually, I think this place has just had a glow up in every way. And I'm happy to stay and I'm happy to continue my work as a reporter here. So it's not just a, you know, relatively good compared to the dumpster fire of the, the rest of the world right now, but, <laughs> but you're enjoying it. Okay, cool. Did you, did you like grow up in America, grow up in Taiwan, a little bit of both? Yeah, a bit of both. I've moved around. I've been all over. And um, I, the last my last time around in Taiwan, I was a reporter also, and I worked for Next Media Animation, the people who did the funny animated news, if anybody still remembers those. And uh, after that, I went to new, uh, I went to, um, back to the West Coast and uh, had a different life. And uh, here I am back in Taiwan again. So you went from uh, the keyboard to very sharp knives and, and back to the keyboard. What? What's uh, that's right. What's the story there? Why, I mean, change change a change of professions always always fun, but uh, this one's not so fun. So I've been ignoring my health as one is wont to do when mm. you're in a, um, a work atmosphere of toxic masculinity and a country with really bad healthcare. Um, I came back to Taiwan though, checked out my back, and it turned out. Um, I, ha- I was suffering from uh, some really not fun, um, I think it's called a stress mm. fracture of the T12 Ooh. vertebrae. So it's basically like if you took a muffin and sat on it. <laughs> and uh, that's why I was suffering so much uh, back pain. And I had a surgery. And basically that mm. ended my kitchen career. And uh, so here I am, energy journalist Angelica. <laughs> All right, all right. Were you always an energy journalist, or did you transition? No, not at all. Um, yeah, I, I, I started as a um, medical journalist, and I did political stuff. And then um, when I came back to Taiwan, they needed somebody on the business desk, so I started doing. Also, I cover tech. I cover um, Ministry of Economic Affairs, um, but something really drew me to energy, and I saw that there was a. Um, it was going to be a big issue for Taiwan because um, every single molecule of hydrocarbon that comes into Taiwan has to be imported, whether it's in a, from co- a, a, on a barge for coal or an LNG ship. Um, but we keep our uh, electricity prices very low. Uh, it's basically, they won't say it, but it's subsidized to keep our exports competitive. And um, the government has uh, decided on an energy transition plan 
to go to zero nuclear by 2025 and uh, 50 up to 50 percent natural gas and uh, 30 percent coal and 20 percent renewables. And um, at first, I was really, really um, impressed by all this. Uh, I was working a lot with offshore wind because that's the big, big story. Solar's matured. It's getting built out for a small island, not a lot of space. So offshore wind is a big story, and to have have no real project in uh, 2016 when President Tsai took over, and she basically declared this bold energy transition plan. And so all the developers came to town, and uh, now we have some projects in the water. And in- initially, my imagination was just captured by the offshore wind uh industry and I still love it and I still work within it um, and uh, I still I still believe in it but um, I, I did have a moment of crisis when I realized oh my goodness this is this is going to be a problem for Taiwan because it's intermittent and um, the wind we have really good strong wind in Taiwan but it's strongest in the winter but our energy needs are strongest in the summer and um, I just realized that wind um, is a good thing, but it's not going to solve a problem. And it's certainly not going to get us to President Tsai's stated goal of becoming a net zero country by 2050. Well, I mean, net zero, but the plan also upfront includes like an 80% fossil component or, or there, the plan is to wean right off of that. The, the plan is to wean that off, but um, I feel like 2050 is far enough away that people can just say, net zero in 2050, how magic. Uh, and it's just far enough away that people can say, well, more new technology will come online. But the truth is, we don't really have a plan. And we're taking um, our last nuclear plant um, off if unless we can avert this fate. Our last nuclear plant is going to come offline in 2025. It's already like, you know, pretty low now. I forgot the exact number. Whether I, when I started reporting was 12%. Now it's maybe like eight, nine uh, percent. I think. Um, but it, it's rock solid base load. And uh, if we could extend the life of our nuclear plants, and we have, by the way, a brand new. Sp- nuclear plant that's never been used oh my god just like the philippines right like Bataan has a similar situation well it's it's very sad i'm not aware of Bataan, but this okay. nuclear plant was built to big boy and meant to take about 10 percent of our electricity capacity for the next 40 years or you know depending of course electricity usage is dynamic but um there were a lot of protests so it it had a lot of stop and start construction problems. And now I would say it would probably, I mean, it, it had fuel rods in it. it. It was that far along. We had fuel rods. Um, but unfortunately, the current government is very, very anti-nuclear. And um, if they, basically, they want to just mothball it forever, which I think would be a climate crime. There's a referendum in uh, December to reopen that plant. And um, I'm doing everything I can to try and uh, um, 
the polls are on a nice edge right now. So it could really go either way. I mean, the climate argument is, is pretty indisputable, but even just the economic argument, I mean, what a horrendous waste of, of capital to, I know, to build right? this. Nuclear is expensive, it's too slow, et cetera. These are the arguments that we hear in the West all the time. And it's built, for God's sakes. All you have to do is, is flick the switch, it sounds like. So it, it just sounds like kind of an economic uh, suicide. And energy suicide, really, if we're, if we're you know, talking about the broader sense, I understand that prices are quite volatile for those imported fossil fuels. You say that Taiwan has to import every, every drop of hydrocarbon. Absolutely. And I'm especially worried about how we're going to 50% gas. There's inadequate infrastructure for receiving that gas. And we know that LNG is very volatile in price. Um, we do have um, some long-term contracts that are tied to oil prices. But some of it is purchased on the spot market, and it's just going crazy. It's going crazy in Europe right now. And I, I think that it's going to keep being crazy in the coming years because everybody got this idea into their mind that, okay, we, we're getting off nuclear and renewables not ready for prime time. We're just going to use LNG as a bridge fuel. Well, it's the bridge fuel to nowhere because um, when everybody started having that same idea, all of a sudden went from, a, you know, trash tier energy to, oh, my God, let's get our hands more on more LNG and prices are going crazy. I mean, so uh, we can't talk about Taiwan without the broader geopolitical context. And uh, maybe we need to catch our listeners up really quickly on just the, the history of Taiwan, how it came to be one China policy, that kind of thing. But this is all within the context of creating an energy system that's very uh, dependent on on imports, on boats delivering fuel um, with the potential of maybe some future uh, hard power play by China to, to bring Taiwan back into the motherland. Um, so could you just give us, our international listeners who aren't as familiar with, with Taiwan, just a, a super quick Taiwanese history for dummies to, to paint that context of why energy security is is an issue here? Well, Taiwan is not a country, according to the United Nations. And uh, we haven't been since Nixon went to China in the 70s. And uh, um, a condition to normalizing uh, the relations between China and the U.S. was that the U.S. Um, de-recognizes Taiwan. And we've been a diplomatic international orphan ever since. And uh, we've um, done well for ourselves economically. And we are very recognized as a supplier, um, the world's best um, chips are made in Taiwan, um, TSMC. And um, we're very entrenched in the global supply chain. Um, but even when, when we go to the Olympics, we're not allowed to call ourselves Team Taiwan. We're Team Chinese Taipei which doesn't make any sense. Um, but, you know, don't ask me why. Ask, ask Xi Jinping, ask China, and it's their policy. <laughs> Unfortunately, we just have to live under that threat. And I mean, going back further, this stems out of the, what do you guys call it? Is it the, the Chinese Civil War or, you know, where yeah, the yeah, basically, fascist forces? Yeah. You know, we had the communists and the nationalists in China uh, after World War II, and the nationalists lost, and they uh, beat a retreat to the island of Taiwan, which had other inhabitants at the time. And um, uh, I'm not going to lie to you, the nationalists, they were uh, brutal and authoritarian, and um, they uh, kept Taiwan under martial law until 
1987, believe it or not. And um, it was unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, whatever, under their auspices, um, Taiwan's first nuclear plants were built. And maybe because the opposition party formed um, historical unfortunate accident, uh, the year of Chernobyl or, you know, the year after, I forgot, mm. um, it was basically baked in their political G DNA to be anti-nuclear. And they've continued to be very, very anti-nuclear. This is a democratic progressive party and uh, the DPP. And now they are in power. And I am very supportive of this administration in many ways. We talked before about the wonderful COVID response. And I have also, I think they've raised Taiwan's diplomatic profile by a lot. They've done a lot of things right. But where I don't agree with them is the energy policy. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I was um, I've been reading some pieces about um, anti-nuclearism in uh, in East Asia more broadly, but um, that the hangups aren't so much to do with kind of technophobia or small as beautifulism, um, you know, fetishization of decentralization like we have uh, out here or fear of nuclear accidents. It has a lot more to do with um, the context in which the original nuclear programs emerged, I think, in South Korea as well under a similar kind of authoritarian government, but Taiwan in, in particular. Um, so that's that's uh, some interesting context. Um, just looping back again, though, to this question of an energy security. I mean, I've been doing this kind of series looking at, you know, what is the nuclear secret sauce? Right. We know that nuclear can be built very quickly. Um, it can be built, um, you know, on time and on budget. But it doesn't always work out that way. So, you know, what, what are the ingredients of that secret sauce? Um, not to use too much of a chef reference here, but, you know, one of them is certainly fossil fuel scarcity and, and energy security concerns. And I think that's why precisely Japan and South Korea um, and Taiwan probably embarked uh, on nuclear to begin with. Absolutely. In fact, Taiwan's first nuclear plant came online just in time to save our bacon from the oil shocks of the 70s. Right. And we built our first nuclear plants really quickly. Um, I might get this wrong, but only by details. Our um, second nuclear plant is a carbon copy of the Vermont Yankee. And mm -hmm. uh, the, the Vermont Yankee um, took, I don't know, 11 years to build. Um, and we shaved a few years of that. Like We built ours in, I was going to say seven. I, I, I don't remember exactly. But uh, we were able to do that because it was a matter of energy security. And this is a thing that I find interesting. When you build nuclear plants, wherever you are in the world, and the chief impetus is energy security, they get built quickly. When it is to, um, when other considerations come online, somehow all this regulatory stuff um, just start gunking up the works. And it was the same in Taiwan. When we were um, under this atmosphere of uh, extreme pressure to have energy security, the plants got built quickly. But by the time it came time to construct the fourth nuclear plant, the one that's uh, mothballed and uh, is, you know, on track never to produce any power, um, that ran into terrible cost overruns, uh, construction delays, um, stop-start construction, which just wrecked havoc with costs and continuity and created all sorts of problems. Um, and it really is a 
great illustration. Like, how is it possible? How is it possible? Taiwan in the seventies was not the wealthy Taiwan it is today, right? Ta- Taiwan in the seventies was barely developed, still selling tennis shoes. So, um, not not my, not microchips. So, how how is it possible that it's easier and faster and more efficient to build a nuclear plant that is, by the way, still running today and providing rock solid baseload? How is it possible to do it better back then than later on when we were richer and we had more technology? So that I think points to the fact that a lot of the problems we have. With nuclear, it's not technical at all, but political. Okay, I, I probably have a little bit of a clumsy um, thesis here,、um, and I'm very open to being challenged on it. But one of my answers to that question,、um, from sort of surveying things around the world,、um, would be neoliberalism. Um, a loss of a loss of state capacity. I know you're a, you're a shill for neoliberalism. I'm interested in exploring that. I don't want to make the whole interview about that, but、um, this idea that、um, the nuclear secret sauce involves a certain amount of state stewardship and state capacity.、Um, I talk about you know nuclear as being a, a freight train、um, rather than kind of wind and solar being little bicycles with panniers that you need to build the railroad tracks, you need to build the locomotives, all the infrastructure. That usually takes a pretty robust role from the state, at least to signal. That hey, this is a safe investment environment for private capital.、Um, let's just divert slightly into this whole this whole neoliberalism thing.、Um, I was trying to sort of understand maybe where you're coming from with that, and within the context of you know these authoritarian regimes and economic regimes, that that makes some sense to me. I've heard you speak on other podcasts in a way that's a little more、um, nuanced than maybe how I tend to think of、uh, neoliberal thinkers as you know maybe.、Uh, Vulture capitalism, or kind of a savage neoliberalism. There's probably some adjectives you can add on to that, but yeah,、um, super happy to be challenged on on my bias there.、Um, tell me about about being a neoliberal shill and、um, your thoughts about how neoliberalism and nuclear get along. Well, Chris,、um, I started calling myself a neoliberal to troll because people started calling themselves socialists, and、okay. <laughs> uh, it was a it was a Total troll at first because I believe in markets and I love markets and I believe that markets work,、um, but I don't worship markets, and、um, I recognize that for markets to work, there has to be preconditions, and there are things such as economies of scale, supply and demand, that needs to go into a functional market, and、uh, so when I say I'm a neoliberal. All that means is I believe in the market as a tool, not as a god. So it's easy for me to say,、um, as a neoliberal, yeah, go ahead, have a national health insurance system, I, because there is、uh, information asymmetry in health. There's a lot of like you can't shop around for、uh, the perfect、uh, heart surgery when you are in the middle of having a heart attack. So it's something that. You can't、um, have a super open market for, like, say, for a cell phone, right?、Um, you can't shop around for that. The same is true for nuclear. I believe,、um, and I don't think this conflicts with me describing myself as a neoliberal at all. That、um, in order to have an economy of scale for a,、um, a for a for nuclear energy to work. The state needs to be involved, and the state needs to pick a design that is a winner. 
and the state needs to perhaps working with a private partner, um, take that design and uh, do a cookie cutter style, one after another. And that's where you're going to cost down because you're keeping your team together. You're keeping your knowledge base together. You are um, replicating parts. You're replicating um, design. And uh, that's how, how France did it. And that's how France built all those nuclear plants that are still providing them with nuclear legacy right now. If you look at France on any given day on electricitymap.com, it's like a battery for all of Europe. It's exporting all this energy, like Germany after 20 years of the Energiewende, um, is still like producing. So like <laughs> on some days, like when the wind isn't blowing, 10 times the carbon intensity of France. How does that work? Huh? So um, I, all I can say is um, I won't get into neoliberalism and um, what it means then, what it means now, what people think it means. I think it's kind of irrelevant um, because, like I said, when I took on the title, I, I really just did it to, to troll. <laughs> but I do believe in markets and uh, I believe in understanding markets. It sounds like good old fashioned liberalism. I'm not sure about the the neo part of it there. If that was that was part of the troll, I think like one of the interesting things is is just how deregulation of electricity markets, at least in in the U S. probably in Canada as well, is really disadvantaging nuclear. And um, you know, there's some things that the market just doesn't do well. I think like you were saying, things like healthcare and even these deregulated markets. There are so many mechanisms um, and and micro regulations within the deregulation process that it's it's hard to know what a what a truly free market is, et cetera. But let's let's not um, divert too far from that. Um, you are a you know you're a reporter. You work in the media. Um, what's I, I'm I'm finding this around the world. I'm talking to folks in Europe. Um, uh, more more recently, and just embarked on this fairly um, suicidal energy path. Um, what Meredith Angwin has famously called the the fatal trifecta. I mean, what a what a woman, um, you know, and what an incredible analysis. How useful that has been. Um, she's basically referenced in every podcast, but every every um, uh, sort of advanced western country that's embarking on an energy transition seems to be following that that rubric and as you're saying in the case of of taiwan for reasons of of energy security but also just for basic economic reasons of the cost of energy the policies that are being embarked on are 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 suicidal to a degree uh, are you able to get that message through in the media are you a lone lone voice here um what's the environment like a lot of people see the problems coming but um there's too much argument and partisanship to really, um, for nuclear really to have a chance. Uh, basically, um, the opposition party is politically radioactive right now because they are the more pro-China party. And if you've been paying attention to the news at all, if you've been looking at Hong Kong, if you've look been looking at um, Xinjiang, uh, that's not a good brand. That's not a brand you want to be associating yourself with. And as for the rest of President Tsai's energy policy, I just don't think the S has hit the F yet because um, we are on a pretty steep growth um, when it comes to uh, GDP growth and energy use growth. And um, our natural gas is not going to keep up with this in a way that's safe and um, effective and affordable because, okay, 
people talk about blockades. People talk about China, like destroying our infrastructure. What if China just ended up using more natural gas on its own? Ooh. It doesn't even have to want to mess with us deliberately. If it just experienced growth, if it just needed that gas for its own use, um, it could totally mess us up in a way that we don't have a plan to cope with, right? Um, like we are the the shrimp caught between two wells, the U.S. and China, and uh, you know if China. Um, can cause all sorts of instability without even meaning to, let alone the fact that they definitely are thinking about it. <laughs> so um, the dependence on natural gas, to me, is a unforgivable national security. Um, do you know in the summer, and I'm talking about right now, we're not even at 50% natural gas dependency yet. We, can, we have enough uh, natural gas infrastructure uh, receiving terminals uh, to hold about and tanks to hold about a week's worth of natural gas. What if we have a typhoon? What if we have a typhoon and and the and the those you know chubby LNG ships can't come in? Um, what if that happens? Gee. And you got to ask yourself: Is natural if nat if natural gas is as fragile, are we ever going to get off coal? And and uh, all those very old, very dirty coal plants that should be retired are still being capped as uh, you know um, capacity, like like margin. Um, but the truth of the matter is, um, they're going to get used. And um, Taiwan's carbon intensity is, is really terrible. It's like, uh, I think maybe Australia is worse, but it is, it is bad. Wow. wow. And uh, with 20, with let's say, let's say we reach that 20% by, by 2025 goal. That's introducing a huge amount of intermittency to a system. Like, okay, when, when, Germany's having a problem when it's a cloudy day and the wind's not blowing. At least it can buy the energy, the nuclear power from France. We are an isolated grid, so we can run the energy up and down the tiny island, which basically can fit into one of the lakes in America, <laughs> the Great Lakes. Um, it's it's not ideal to have that amount of intermittency at all. I think we've just come to take grid stability for granted. It's uh, maybe it's just a generational thing. If you went back, you know, to my great grandparents, they'd have an understanding of what um, a long-term blackout is. Like the <clears throat> this idea of like you know this these coming blackouts, which are based on you know a lack of generation, not because of a tree falling on a on a transmission line. <clears throat> People have no concept of what what that really means. Um, I guess maybe the Texans are starting to have a sense of that, and the Californians will soon, but. Um, <clears throat> hopefully not too late. It, it is, you know, in terms of thinking through all the various characteristics of the energy, um, different energy sources. I mean, the ones that can store fuel on site are coal and nuclear. Um, nuclear much more so. You can, I guess, store years of of fuel on site. Yeah, I mean, for for na national security, um, nuclear is actually fabulous for Taiwan. Like you say, you you easily you as a matter of course, you have sixteen months 
fuel at hand. And you can easily increase that to three years if you wanted to. And um, people talk about nuclear energy being a liability in war, but it is not. First of all, those things are you know built like tanks. And second of all, we are right next to China. So <laughs> whatever China would like to bomb in Taiwan, it would not be a nuclear energy plant. So um, people have just not thought things through, even through the first layer, if they think of nuclear energy as being a national security liability. It is not. Um, people also worry about earthquakes. People worry about incompetence. People worry about a lot of things, and I can relate to those people because um, this might surprise you, Chris, but as little as a year ago, I was anti-nuclear. Um, I was an anti-nuclear normie. I mean, before I started reporting on this issue, it, it's a default position in our society. I never thought that much about it. It was just nuclear scary, nuclear bad, nuclear old-fashioned, nuclear expensive, you know, all those ideas... I don't even know when I first heard them. They were just kind of implanted in my mind. And because I'd never worked with energy, I never challenged it. And it was just like, oh, well, global warming's terrible and we're all going to die and oh, well. Or, oh, technology's going to come in and save us, solar, wind, blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it, it wasn't until I started really working with this um, subject as a reporter and I went on the Thai Power, um, map, you know, energy map for the day and, and saw, oh, when, what is that pink chunk that is stable throughout the day and never moved? Okay. Oh, that's nuclear. And um, it, I, I started uh, talking to people about nuclear and I gradually realized that this, all these misconceptions that I don't even know how, how it got into my head. And once I thought it all the way through, it just kind of became crazy that we are saying we want to go zero carbon, we're saying we want to go green, and we're turning our proven sources of um, low carbon energy off. I mean, let's not talk about nuclear one, that's Fukushima era. So, you know, let's say that's a little dicey and let that go. Nuclear 2, nuclear 3, they are good plants that easily have another 10, 20 years of life in them, if not more. Um, we know about the amazing life extension that has gone on for these legacy plants. And nuclear 4, of course, it's, it's never been open. <laughs> it's, just, it's still in its wrapper. Right, 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 right. Let's... um. Let's shift gears a bit then and um, talk about your time um, in the the wind industry. Um, there's there's money there, right? Um, oh I think yeah. You've, you're probably being accused of not only being a neoliberal shill but also a, a nuclear shill, and <laughs> it's it's just been so interesting. Um, I've had that accusation leveled at me as well, and when you realize that there really isn't a nuclear bogeyman industry because nuclear plants generally are owned by companies that also own fossil plants there's no sort of natural interest or patronage relationship of a like nuclear industry as such there's kind of trade associations but um how does that compare with your experience um it with the with the renewables industry all i can say is chris i'm absolutely like um doing my career as a energy reporter, a disservice, probably my own, I'm, to put it in the crassest possible way, I'm taking out of my bread out of my mouth by sitting here yeah. and talking to you about nuclear energy. 
because I don't expect there to be anybody to pay me to do this advocacy work.、Um, but if I met one、um, offshore wind PR person in Taiwan, I've met a hundred, and、um, I <laughs> I could probably work in offshore wind PR anytime I want.、Um, I don't、mm-hmm. want that. I think there's value to reporting it,、um, but、um, my passion is not in promoting it. Is it is it easy to get stories about nuclear into、uh, into the media? It's just so politicized that nuclear power is so associated with the opposition party that、right. um, people are confused when you、um, say, "Well, I'm not a KMT person, but I am pro nuclear."、Uh, mm-hmm. In my work for the Taipei Times. I play it down the middle. I report on what's going on, so it's not my place to editorialize.、Um, right. In but in my spare time, I have started the Tai Taiwan chapter of Stand Up for Nuclear, and、um, I've been posting on it in my spare time, which I don't have much of. But I can tell you,、um, there are people out there. Polls show, especially younger people. They are more open to nuclear and less dogmatically anti-nuclear than the generation before, regardless of their political affiliations.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Just you know, the I, I think you're absolutely right. It's not about sort of editorializing or or standing for nuclear, but I mean, just the key issue of, of or you know, I can do that in my own time. It's just separate from my work. But、yeah. but as an issue, you know, it just seems so obvious. I think to to us, this question of energy energy security、um, in the context of the the geopolitical threats that Taiwan faces, or you know, great instability.、Um, mm-hmm. Th- those arguments you're able to to make, or how do, how do you approach、um, talking about nuclear in, in the in your articles, or in terms of entering into the the national debate? Well, we gotta separate my articles, which just mention nuclear as it happens, and I, you know,、uh, try to, you know, you're like a baseball umpire. You call the balls and the strikes as you see them, but you don't insert yourself into the game,、um, right. and. I don't have too much to talk about that. I haven't written many nuclear stories.、Um, uh, those that I have written,、um, I've tried to keep them fair and balanced,、uh, talking to both pro and anti-nuclear sources.、Um, in terms of my advocacy, I find that、um, it's 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 really really difficult to deprogram people who are、um, who care passionately about the environment, as do I, but. They just have it that association so deep、um, that nuclear is somehow antithetical to being environmentally friendly.、Um, that it's 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 really hard, and I think it's it's all over the world,、um, not just in Taiwan.、Um, <laughs> you know, to get that particular brain worm out. And is it's antithetical to democracy as well? Is that is that part of the, or am I oversimplifying it? This is an interesting issue because the the nuclear plants were built under the KMT, and they did a lot of stuff that just wasn't cool, you know, in terms of overruling the concerns of the people, or you know, they were, they had a lot of low level nuclear waste that really should have just gone straight into the landfill. They weren't that harmful. Instead, they were like, "Oh, we'll just put it on this on Orchid Island, where、um, 
it's only inhabited by only inhabited. It's inhabited by indigenous people. But in their mind, it was okay to put polluting things there. I mean, I would argue as a pro-nuclear person, that's low-level waste. You just put it in the landfill. It's no big deal. But the fact that they did that um, in a very unilateral and disrespectful way really just turned a lot of people off nuclear. And they saw it as this colonialist, evil. They just, all the taint of the regime. You know, this is a regime that perpetrated uh, what we call white terror. It's like, you know, Pinochet style, like, you know, people got disappeared, you know? So um, it's it didn't do good things for the nuclear brand. Let's just put it that way. No, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. And is you're saying wind is the, is the dominant thing. I'm just curious about, um, I have, I have seen some solar farms pictured, um, mm-hmm. I think on some of the mountain slopes in, in Taiwan. Yeah. Um, and just swinging back to China as well. Um, and you mentioned Xinjiang earlier. Is that, does that come up at all in terms of concerns around the solar supply chain or, or labor issues? Or is that, is that an, a, an issue that, that comes to the fore of the situation with the Uyghurs? So, um, solar first. We, for 2025, most of the um, renewable energy capacity is going to come from solar. Um, but mm. then we're running out. It's just that there's just only so much land. And we also right. need to preserve some farmland for food security. So it's mm. becoming a very, very mature market. Compared to wind, which, you know, there's still a lot to be built out. Um, for round three, Taiwan is um, attempting um, 15 gigawatts of uh, wind of course that's installed capacity you know which isn't really what is always going to be coming in um in terms of um sorry what was your second question you were talking about um just about the whether the issue of um like forced labor within the solar supply chain and Xinjiang is um is a potent political issue in taiwan and i don't think people really think about it uh, I don't think okay. people really think about it in, in a lot of places, like where, where right. those uh, rare earth chemicals are coming, uh, uh, where earth um, metals are coming from. But also, weirdly, you know, it benefits the Taiwanese solar panel makers because obviously um, we become a preferred source when they can't, people can't buy Xinjiang uh, solar panels for supply chain reasons. Very interesting. Interesting. So obviously you're not making polysilicon in Taiwan, but doing some of the, uh, the end uh, part of the, the manufacturing Made in process. Made in Taiwan, the whole, the whole right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. no, you, you, you get to put the last dot of welding in something, yes. right? It's made in Taiwan, right? Yeah, so. very interesting. I know China's been trying to do that, I think, uh, to evade sanctions on on that sector. So interesting that China, Taiwan, like there's there's opportunities for cooperation um, between the mainland and, and Taiwan as well. But ultimately, we know where those rare earth co- is coming from. We, we know where those poles so get. That's like, that. that's not getting done in Taiwan. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do worry about People not really, I, I, I want to make it balanced. Like the real enemy, the biggest enemy is global warming. It's coming for us. Like mm-hmm. I feel like every other week it's some um, flood of the century in a different area, corner of the world. I mean, it's Adam now, but before that it was Zhengzhou in China. And before that, Germany, uh, it's, it's crazy. And 
are we taking it seriously or not? And if we are taking it seriously, why are we taking low carbon energy out of the system right when we need it most and bu- building gas plants? And gas plants live for at least 20 years. Why are we building brand new gas facility? Taiwan is building a, you know, planning to build like, f- we have two natural gas receiving terminals now. We're planning to build three, maybe four and five. And all that investment into a fossil fuel. Sure, it's better than coal, but it's still a fossil fuel. It's it's not getting you closer to that net zero by 2050 that you claim. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's obviously very important to be probably leading with and thinking a lot about mitigation and emissions reductions, but the uh, flip side of the coin is obviously adaptation and, and building resiliency. And you talked about, I think similar probably to, to Japan as well, the cyclone season, you got to shut your wind turbines down when the wind's blowing too much, um, mm. when it's not blowing enough. Um, and really energy is going to be at the basis of a lot of climate adaptation and weathering these more extreme storms or heat waves, yeah. et cetera. Um, is, is Taiwan particularly climate vulnerable? Well, let me just uh, tell you a little foretaste of what might be things to come. In May, Taiwan sure. suffered two blackouts. Um, first one especially was pretty brutal. Six hours of rolling blackouts up and down the island. And um, how did this happen when the state-run electricity company was telling us that we are at green light for energy reserves, green for good, mm. where we're supposed to have energy reserves? It turned out that they counted some hydro reserves that they ended up not using because Taiwan was also in the middle of a, uh, a drought? historical drought. Yes, the worst drought on record, in fact. And so they were basically counting the same resource twice. They were counting it as part of their reserves for electricity generation. But when push come to shove, and a, I, I think it was a natural gas plant that went offline for some reason, um, like a, one of those connection buses um, dropped. Um, they didn't have, they didn't, they weren't able to use that hydropower because then you would have lost the water. Right. So uh, as they call it interseasonal variability, that means Taiwan isn't getting wetter or drier. It's going to have much wetter years and much drier years. And, right. and so, um, hydro, which is so wonderful for, um, bringing stability to the grid, it's just going to be out of, out of commission. This is not in your bullpen. Right. Sounds um, a lot like California this year. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's been, it's been interesting, um, like thinking about hydro as an intermittent resource, but more on a sort of seasonal or, or annual basis. You know, the, the volatility of, of wind and solar is kind of moment to moment or day to day. Um, and I guess seasonally there's, there's changes, but yeah, there's certainly drought years where hydro drops off. Um, okay, Angelica, I know you're having a pretty busy evening here. You have another podcast, uh, recording scheduled in about 10 minutes. So, um, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Do you have any, um, I don't know, any closing thoughts, anything you'd like to leave our listeners with, um, your perspective on things? Um, this is your, your couple minutes here. Well, um, thanks for the pressure, Chris. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> I just want to, I'm just trying to think, what can I say to myself one year ago um, that would 
changed my mind because I was an anti-nuclear normie. And I, I would, I would just say this, um, you know, I know this is cliched and the listeners of this podcast all know this, like this Coke can right here. This is all the nuclear waste you are going to produce, um, the spent fuel, um, in your lifetime. It's containable. It's doable. And it's, it's, it's technology that's already been proven. Go to electricitymap.com and take a look at it and take a look at the countries that have done well with nuclear. Don't be distracted with things, people saying nuclear is expensive or there's no solution for storage because, um, when you look at the country that have done nuclear right, if, and half a century ago, then, um, you realize that it's 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 a it's it's you you've just been played and and people are always saying okay this is all this amazing new technology that's going to come out and battery technology is going to get so exponentially better solar is going to get exponentially cheaper well i'm telling you nuclear energy has been hobbled has been artificially held back for half a century but it is still beating renewables into the ground on the daily every day if you go on electricitymap.com right now mm-hmm. so what does that tell you about the possibility of nuclear energy i and and i'm a all solutions kind of person and i think they've done amazing things with wind energy and there are more exciting um things to come but uh you know uh we didn't used to hear about grid instability or the need to increase resilience because we used to be able to control when our power is made and how much of it we made and we need a certain amount of that back in our grid again and so um all those wonderful renewables uh solar offshore wind which i do love i love the offshore wind supply chain so much i love big ships i love the ocean but in order to have um, those intermittent sources be a healthy part of our energy diet, we need baseload. And the only source of clean baseload that we have is nuclear. Thank you for making the time. I know it's very, very late in Taiwan right now. Um, and you're heading into podcast number two. So uh... It's just that kind of day. Well, Chris, I, I love your show so much. I've learned so much from it. And you're doing an amazing job. And I can't believe that you're doing this like on top of your job as a doctor. It just blows my mind. And um, uh, so thank you for doing this. And thank you for all that you do, because I a lot of what I learned, um, I learned on your podcast. So thank you. Ah, shucks. Ah, shucks. Okay, Angelica, thank you. I'm, I'm blushing, but... Uh... <laughs> Thank you for those kind words. Okay, looking forward to interacting with you again in the future on Twitter and hopefully having you back on the show at some point. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.